Blog Talk Radio. Hello, folks. Welcome to another episode of Theology Matters with the Paloos. I am one half of our um, hosting duo, Melissa Palou, and um, Devin is not on uh, the air with me today, but I do have a special guest as we um, will be tackling a very interesting topic today that um, is definitely very relevant to um, a lot of uh, the, um, the social climate around us today um, as Christians interact with the world and with um, uh, social issues and politics and, um, uh, and, how, uh, and, and theology in general as well as we look at these, these difficult issues. Um, again, we're so happy to be with you. It's been a, a little while that, um, since we've recorded, and we've had a really, really busy semester with Ratio Christi at Winthrop University, and so that has kept us super busy being on the college campus. Um, as well as um, in the community, um, uh, doing a lot of apologetics training and events and um, evangelism. And so um, we are at the end of another semester, so we will be um, having a series of recordings um, with a number of guests that we have lined up. So definitely stay tuned, and we will keep you updated um, as we add uh, new shows throughout the summer. So we are, um, again, like I said, we are having a special um, dialogue today with, with a good friend of ours, and we're going to be discussing the topic of critical theory. And um, for Devin and I uh, being on the college campus on a daily basis, interacting with students, um, interacting with the different ideas and philosophies um, that are prevalent on the college campus, and um, you know, having general discussions with students and with faculty. Um, the, the topic of critical theory um, comes up quite a lot. And so um, it is uh, actually um, has, has become uh, a, a central topic even within Christianity. And so that's why we want to talk about this. Um, we want to be informed. We want to learn how to engage. And we want to examine and see if uh, critical theory is, in fact, something that Christians should embrace or if it's something that we should um, reject um, and we you know and, and as we um, examine the scriptures and uh, as we uh, try to live in light of a biblical worldview so with us today to discuss this topic um, is a good friend of Devin and mine um, Dr. Neil Shinvey and Dr. Shinvey um, he is a research scientist and um, he is uh, at Duke University I believe he is actually homeschooling his family right now. Uh, we will catch up on with him on some of um, the latest developments in his life. Uh, Neil, he is a graduate of Princeton University in UC Berkeley, where he earned a PhD in chemistry and completed postdoctoral studies at Yale University. And um, so he is a very brilliant mind um, in a number of areas, not just in science, um, but in, in Christian apologetics and Christian worldview in general. So we'll, we'll talk more to Neil about how he got um, involved and interested in the topic of critical theory. Um, but Neil, are you there with us? Yep, I'm right here. Great. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you so much for being on the air with me. And I know that you and I have had quite a, um, a, a, a extensive discussions about this particular topic. And related topics, and so this show is 
oops, is a long time coming. So um, yeah. I'm glad that we were able to um, to work things out so that we could um, bring uh, bring light to this topic and discuss it um, in a way I think that you and I would both agree um, to, to kind of take a look at this issue in a way that maybe hasn't been um, a way that critical theory hasn't been critiqued um, as thoroughly from a Christian perspective. So I'm really glad that we could do that. Um, and um, go ahead and tell us about yourself in general and um, you may, maybe just your journey um, as far as your your Christian journey and your family and um, all of those things that um, kind of led you to who you, who you are today. Sure. So I, uh, I, I grew up in a great home with great parents. I love my parents, uh, but we were not raised in a Christian home, my brother and I. Uh, I didn't become a Christian until graduate school at Berkeley, uh, through, partly through meeting my future wife, Christina, who was a Christian. And uh, it basically came down for me to the question of whether I was a good person. So I'd kind of, I was kind of sort of spiritual type. I believed in God. But I, I and I, I loved C.S. Lewis actually. I loved reading um, the Chronicles of Narnia and the Screwtape Letters. But I really couldn't figure out the deal with Christianity because I didn't feel like it just felt weird to me. And it, mm-hmm. and it re- really came down to the fact that I thought I was really smart. I was super smart, and Christianity was for for dumb people. And uh, mm-hmm. that was that was the real obstacle. And it, when I began realizing, I got to Berkeley. I said, you know what? I'm going to go to church with my with my you know, then girlfriend, future wife, I'll go to church with her, show her I'm open-minded. And uh, the people, the Christians I met in church, we, you know, had PhDs. They were students, professors mm-hmm. at Berkeley. And so seeing that, I realized I can't just dismiss Christianity out of hand. I have to think about whether it's true. And when I thought about whether it's true, I realized I didn't like it. It was telling me people mm-hmm. didn't want to hear. Yeah, and, and, and so that, it really came to the point where I said, you know, I can't dismiss this anymore. I, I remember praying to God one night. I was like, I don't even know who you are. I, I was so confident that I knew God. I knew about God. I was smarter than these redneck Christians and these Bible thumpers. Mm-hmm. But I came to a place where I said, I don't know who you are. But if, you know, if Jesus is your son, then I'm going to follow him. And, mm-hmm. you know, that's, I think that's the night when I was converted. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a small, mm-hmm. like a seed, you know, Jesus talks about Faith being it's like a seed, and mm-hmm. that was when things started to change. And so I, I came to realize the big obstacle was I had to humble myself and realize I am not this awesome intellectual giant. When it comes to spiritual mm-hmm. things, I am a child. In fact, I'm worse. I'm a rebel, and I need to be saved. Mm-hmm. So that was where it started for me. And then that was yeah, 2000, 2001. So I've been a Christian wow. for about 17 years. I have a long way to go theologically, wow. but just start was just saying, I'm a sinner who needs a savior. Right. Yeah, I'm always interested to hear other stories and other journeys. Um, I had quite an interesting journey myself, um, but it's just it's God's grace finds us where we are, and um, he puts us on, on the path, and um, it, it's just very interesting to hear. And just the, the fact that you were at Berkeley, which we know um, the envir- how the environment there is in, in terms of Christianity and the hostility. So the fact that you are saved um, at such a in such an environment um, is a miracle in and of itself. <laughs> yeah, I think in some ways being a Christian in places like Berkeley is actually somewhat easier because the lines are so sharp. You know, 
um, in the sense mm-hmm. that there aren't any cultural Christians in Berkeley, or there are fewer. So if you say I'm a Christian in Berkeley, I, I remember running into some people with signs, waving signs when I was like a second year or third year. The sign said, stop the Christian fascists. And mm. uh, and that, that was sort of very typical. And so if you're a Christian in that environment, you have to really believe it. You have to really say, no, I, I, I'm a Christian, and it's because I'm a miserable sinner. I need a savior. You can't just be there right. because it's yeah, like coffee on Sunday and the donuts and the casseroles and that just doesn't happen much. So people people who um, were there in that environment were generally committed to the gospel uh, because of that. Um, they didn't just fall into church. You didn't, didn't go to church on Sundays for fun. So that's a kind of a good um, thing. Yeah, and, you know, and for myself, you know, living here in the Carolinas and growing up in the Carolinas and, you know, Christianity is, is pretty much, um, it, it's everywhere around you. And um, so, for myself, um, I got saved around the same time as well. I got saved in 2000 at age 20, and so um, I thought that I knew what it was, but um, came to realize that I really didn't know what the gospel was um, until um, it was clearly laid out for me, um, and and when I truly, um, you know, repented and, and the Holy Spirit opened my heart and eyes. So that's that's a really interesting um, journey, and I think you know I think you know as you said being in, in that environment and that um, I'm sure sparked your interest in terms of the apologetics world, and I know that that's how we ha- how we met, how our paths crossed is um, in the apologetics community and dealing with the issues of faith and reason and how um, these two um, uh, do not um, contradict, but there's a beautiful relationship between faith and reason, and um, which we both affirm. And so that, um, you know, kind of leads us into... Um, our discussion for today on critical theory, and um, mm-hmm. which is the concept itself, um, can be a little um, difficult to to narrow down, I, I guess, for some people. Right. Um, yeah. And something that we need to to be aware of as we, um, again, as we investigate whether or not this is something from our biblical worldview that we should embrace, or if we should reject it, or um, if there are some 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 areas or some some tools within the model that we can um, that we can use wisely as Christians, and so let's just um, kind of jump into that. Um, so, can you kind of give us a definition of what you would say um, critical theory is? Sure. So, critical theory. The part of the problem, as you alluded to, is that it's a really nebulous, amorphous term. It's it's part of lots of disciplines. Lots of people invoke critical theory. The, the term critical theory originated, I, I believe, in the, the Frankfurt School in Germany in the 1930s. This is a school of mm-hmm. philosophers, sociologists, who were, and their project was to sort of create a unified vision of social science and philosophy. And their goal was to secure or promote human liberation, freedom. Now, these people in the 30s, they were, they, were, they, were, they were Marxists. They were professing Marxists who were trying to, were thinking, but not just in terms of um, freedom for the, the oppressed workers, but more generally, how do we secure human freedom and liberation for all those who were oppressed? So that was the original mm-hmm. critical theory, but the problem is that it's, it's changed a lot. It's evolved quite a bit. And so now you have this huge amorphous mass of ideologies and disciplines that have they're all variously referred to as critical theory. So when I talk about critical theory, um, I like to just define it in terms of ideas. 
So, okay. and so not all critical theory will necessarily espouse all of these ideas, but I think you'll see in a second when I talk about the two main principles behind what I call critical theory, that you'll recognize them immediately, I think. So the first basic tenet is the idea that our identities as individuals are inextricably linked to our group identities, and specifically whether we're part of an oppressor group or an oppressed group, a dominant group or a subordinate group. So that could mm -hmm. be things like men, males are traditionally an oppressor group who have oppressed the, uh, the women or the female group. They're a, they're a subordinate group. Um, heterosexuals are a dominant group. Homosexuals are an oppressed group. Uh, uh, healthy, healthy people are, are at a dominant group. Disabled people are an oppressed group. So the okay. first tenet is that our identities as individuals are inextricably linked to whether we're part of an oppressor group or an oppressed group with respect to some given uh, identity label. So that's number one. Mm -hmm. uh, and number two is that our fundamental duty, everyone's duty, uh, as human beings, their primary duty is to seek the liberation of oppressed groups. That's that's what we are called to do. Uh, and it looks okay. differently for whether we ourselves are part of an oppressed group or an oppressor group, but the point is that's the all the main duty of humanity is to seek liberation from oppression. And again, that ties right into what the original critical theorists were about, liberation from oppression. Um, mm -hmm. so those are two basic tenets of what I call critical theory. Um, the other three that are that are they're there definitely, but it's not they're quite as crucial and central. Uh, number three would be the idea that lived experience is sort of ultimate. The, the way you know things is through lived experience, and that's almost more important than evidence, reason, argument. Lived experience becomes, takes a centrality in critical thought. Uh, the fourth mm -hmm. would be that privileged access to truth, so that people that are oppressed have an access to truth that is unavailable to oppressors, that they have a special insight into certain truths that you simply can't have if you're an oppressor. So oppressed people have insight that, that's a truth. And then fifth, finally, is the idea of intersectionality. This is the idea that um, various forms of oppression can intersect in a, in a person that they experience oppression in a different way. And this was um, uh, Kimberly Crenshaw was a legal scholar who, who coined this term to describe, for example, how black women will experience oppression that is more than just being black or more than just being a woman. It comes together, it intersects, so that you can't just add up, you can't sum up oppression as a woman and oppression as a black person. That's what it's like to be a black woman. There's something more qualitatively different about being in that intersectional space where you're a black woman and will experience different kinds of oppression than either blacks or women will experience. So those are the mm -hmm. two big ones and three sort of minor um, uh, ideas that are that are part of what I call critical theory. Mm. Interesting. Yeah, and so um, we, we'll be breaking um, those um, those general thoughts down a little more throughout the uh, the um, interview here. Um, Neil, how did you get really interested in in this whole idea and, and study of critical theory. I, I know that you and I, um, we, we've had um, conversations over the years, and um, I know with our show with um, Letitia, with um, True Life Fridays, and even Devin and myself with Theology Matters, um, with this show in the past, over the years we have looked at um, critical theory um, from a general perspective when it kind of became popular, um, mm -hmm. more so 
in the areas of um, kind of the white privilege theory uh, movement and, and that when, when these conferences started popping up um, at um, liberal arts campuses. So, um, but, but how did you particularly um, get interested in this topic, you know, coming from a scientific um, and apologetics background? Yeah, it's really interesting because I remember you and Letitia trying to get trying to tell me about this stuff years ago. It's like, oh, I don't know. It sounds kind of like you know you're going you're 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 uh, overreacting or something. I remember thinking that. So, but then mm -hmm. the last few years, um, I began. So, I think it started when I was starting to seeing videos of campus activism at places like Yale, mm -hmm. Mizzou, Evergreen State. Uh, articles about Oberlin. Just there was a lot of campus activism, and. Now, there were conservative writers, like people like David French in the National Review, who were talking about how that the, these people, these activists, were embracing a worldview or even a religion, a new religion in a sense. And I was kind of like, okay, I watched the videos and I kind of saw that behavior. It was all very similar. They definitely had the same idea, the same way of thinking about things. But then mm -hmm. not only was for people like David French saying that, like a conservative writing a conservative uh, a journal, but I started seeing – people writing articles uh, on intersectionality and critical theory, at, but from liberal perspectives. So, for example, Andrew Sullivan, he's a conservative Catholic, but he's a gay man, and he's writing an article in the, the liberal New York magazine on intersectionality as a religion. Uh, John McWhorter, mm -hmm. is a, he describes himself as a cranky Democrat. I wrote in the Daily Beast yeah. about how uh, you know, he called anti-racism as a religion. Elizabeth Corey, mm -hmm. writing in Catholic... Journal First Things wrote, a, wrote a, an article called uh, The First Church of Intersectionality. And so these are people that were not like right-wing conservative evangelicals. They were mm -hmm. uh, very, or, or all over the spectrum. And writing about, we're seeing the emergence of a new, uh, don't call it religion, a little bit alarmist, but call it a new worldview, new way of looking at reality. Mm -hmm. So that was happening. Right. I was watching, again, I wasn't just reading articles. I was watching the, I mean, always look for primary sources. I was reading the statements of these students. I was watching the interviews. I was watching the videos. So it's not like I was relying on a secondary source. And mm -hmm. uh, in conjunction with that happening, I was sort of beginning to have experiences with people personally who were either leaving Christianity altogether or who were drifting in their theology uh, when they began to embrace some of these ideas. And so it would begin mm -hmm. often that they'd start embracing ideas about social justice. Now, now depending on how you define that term, that's a good thing, being concerned about widows and orphans and their distress, being concerned about justice and fairness. That's good as a Christian to embrace people who care about oppression and who want to overturn oppression and, and fight injustice. That's great. But they, mm -hmm. that I noticed that the same people then would start drifting to the extent where they, they start thing, doing things like denying the exclusivity of Christ, like, well, maybe Jesus is not the only way, or, or becoming mm -hmm. atheists. We're not talking about a little, not becoming Presbyterians here. You know, they're, they're, they're really mm -hmm. drifting in their theology. And then not only mm -hmm. people that I knew experiencing that, but I saw public figures, like prominent evangelical public figures who, who were drifting, right. liberal, theologically liberal. I'm not talking about politically here at all. I'm talking about theological liberalism creeping mm -hmm. into their, right. their discourse. And I kept thinking, well, I don't, what's the connection between caring about the poor, which is commanded in the Bible, and then denying that Jesus is God? Or think, like, what's the connection here? And mm -hmm. uh, so, and I, and, there, and 
I couldn't figure out quite what it was. And if I noticed, again, the, the language is all the same. They're using the same terms, the same ideas were being expressed. And most of the I thought of an interesting illustration here. I, I know mm-hmm. you and Devin do a quite a bit of work. So imagine you're talking to someone about mm-hmm. theology, and they use the term torture stake. What would you immediately assume? Or paradise Okay, but this is what again? Hanging on the torture stick or paradise earth, that you know, that one day there will be a paradise earth. What? Paradise? I don't know if you were Devin. Yeah? Yeah, um, like something in referencing um, future, uh, like utopia, heaven, things like that. Yeah, right. I don't know if you were, I think, is it it Devin who does a lot of work with Jehovah's Witnesses? Yes, yes. Uh Yeah, see, so. That term, torture stake, uh, is a term that the Watchtower uses for cross. They, they don't use the word cross. I'm not sure why. And they also right. they talk right. about paradise earth a lot. So the, the point is, if I heard that term used in conversation, I would immediately think, oh, I, I know where you're – you've probably been influenced by Watchtower theology because that term is mm-hmm. – now, is the term wrong? No, it's not wrong. It's not false. But mm-hmm. – uh, when you hear that term immediately, if you're familiar with the Watchtower, you think, oh, right. that term comes from Watchtower theology. I wonder if they're getting that term from – they must be getting it from Watchtower theology, even if they're not mm-hmm. – So when I began to mm-hmm. hear the same phrases, terms, language, and I, again, mainly ideas being used, I was thinking, where is this mm-hmm. coming from? It's all coming from somewhere. So then finally, I forget exactly why, but I read um, – an anthology of it sitting right here. It's a uh, uh, Maureen. No, no, sorry. The one I first read was Margaret Anderson's Race, Class, and Gender. It's a 500-page anthology of about 52 essays, primary sources of uh, people who feminists, uh, people in gender studies, anthropology uh, uh, that were. But it is. It was eye-opening. I finally realized this is a worldview. This is where all these ideas are coming from. I saw this connection immediately because in these essays, these primary sources were, were espousing the very same ideas I was seeing all over the place. So that's how I got interested in this whole uh, this whole idea. Right. Yeah, I think it's very important. You know, we see the implications in culture, and um, and then we look at the just go down to the basic ideologies that that are that these um, implications are coming from, and um, I, I think that's so important. And I think that's what you were you were piecing together that there's something here that these conclusions yeah. they're coming from a common source. And let's go look at the source, um, kind of yeah, right. um, kind of there. Um, you had mentioned earlier um, Marxism and. Um, In our culture, I think, you know, this is a term that's thrown around. And um, would you, like, could you explain um, particularly uh, what, if critical theory has anything to do with Marxism, um, if they're the same thing, if they're different, um, how how would you approach that question? Right. So as I've described critical theory, it's probably closest to something that was actually called neo-Marxism. So the, so the Frankfurt School and uh, Antonio Gramsci probably call themselves neo-Marxists. So they took Marx's idea of a class conflict. So Marx believed there's a conflict between economic classes, the, the bourgeoisie and the proletariat. The, the bourgeoisie were exploiting the labor of the proletariat. There's a class struggle. So he had that idea, but the neo-Marxists applied that same idea of a struggle not between economic classes, between things like genders, 
races, ethnicities, sexual orientations. That was that was later. But but the point is they they saw themselves as an outgrowth of Marxism. Now here's the problem though. Uh, so today mm-hmm. you'll hear people talk about cultural Marxism. They'll they'll call critical theory cultural Marxism because it has this idea of a struggle between between groups like Marx had. I do not mm-hmm. use that term because okay. that has become basically like a way of name calling. You know, you'll hear conservatives just, you know, you say, hey, you want to split lunch? They're like, oh, you're a Marxist. You're a socialist. You know, and it, mm-hmm. so it, 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 it's, it's like become it's, it's like the term bigot. Bigot has lost all meaning. It just means like a bad thing. So I don't right. use the, I don't reference. Marxism or cultural Marxism or even neo-Marxism, even though neo-Marxism would probably be fairly accurate. I prefer the mm-hmm. neutral term critical theory because no one's jumping around and saying critical theory is evil and it killed millions of people. So I just want to use a term that's even if kind of more general and not quite specific enough, it has no negative connotations. If someone has a better term, I, I'm happy to use any term you want. But I think critical theory is a, is a way to calm down to not be associated with this lunatic right-wing confringe that thinks there's a conspiracy theory where communists are trying to undermine democracy. I I just want to say, let's call it, let's focus on the ideas, not on the terms we use. Um, And and I think the danger here is that when people start calling everything cultural Marxism, they're they're crying wolf here. There is an Mm -hmm. ideological challenge and a danger and if you're screaming Marxist at everything, then people are going to stop listening to you. So I would right. kind of hone it down and talk about ideas and whether or not they're biblical and how they can flip about not how we label those ideas. That's why I, don't, I, I avoid the term Marxism of any kind because it's just going to it's like a trigger word. People are going to assume that you're mm-hmm. ultra right wing person. So I prefer critical theory to talk about it you know, in, in terms of ideas. Yeah, and I think, you know, even as a conservative person myself, it, when we're discussing these ideas, we want to be fair. Um, we want to be, um, uh, we want to represent the other's position well. And, again, sometimes we do t- lean towards terminologies um, that are going to evoke, uh, or, or streams, you know, in this case, that, that are going to evoke a certain response and that can uh kind of cut off uh, honest dialogue and, and you know, neutral dialogue as well. So um, I'm with you. We, we do want to be wise with our, our terms and that and, and just deal with the, the theory itself instead of maybe, um, even though it may have implications that, that look um, similar to some Marxist ideas, we, we still want to look at the theory itself and, and critique right. it on its own, on its own ground. So that, that's very wise. Um, so what would you say are some of the um, positive attributes of critical theory? Right. And that's, that's really important to recognize. As you said, we want to be charitable. We don't want to be reactionary and say it's all bad, it's all good. We, mm-hmm. we want to be nuanced and careful and make sure that, you know, one common phrase is all truth is God's truth. And so mm-hmm. if, if critical theory does point out important truths that are consistent with the Bible. And so when we see that, we should affirm that and say, yeah, this is a good reminder to us. It may, might show us ways in which we are ignoring the whole counsel of God, and then we can apply this as a tool. So I, I think we need to avoid this incredibly polarized and polarizing response that, oh, it's all bad. So uh, in terms of what's good, so you know, critical theory, we defined it in terms of two main 
species, that, that, that our identities are tied into our group identities as an oppressor or an oppressed person, and then our duty is to liberate groups from oppression. So that, those fundamental ideas lead number one, it's probably the best contribution, is the idea that we should focus on structures and systems uh, that produce injustice. I know, you know, I, I'm also a conservative, not a sort of very dogmatic one, but, but I am. And so I think the tendency of conservatives is to ignore the role that institutions, structures, systems can play. Uh, and I think mm -hmm. it's important that critical theory shines a light on that and says, no, it, they really can produce injustice and, and evil. Obvious example, conservatives, even conservatives, even rabid conservatives wouldn't deny that things like Jim Crow, the Holocaust – were, were systems where evil was enshrined in law. And so it's not just right. a matter of, of individual people doing evil things. Well, sure, individual Germans did individually bad things, but you had a whole system, a structure that taught them to do bad things. Mm -hmm. So you know, the law is a tutor. The law teaches us what to love and what to hate, always will. So if the law is, uh, is enshrining bad values and wickedness, then it's going to be teaching our hearts to love sin and to hate righteousness. And so we conservatives especially should realize the importance of that critique, that yes, group you know, systems and structures can lead to oppression and can encourage, uh, can encourage sinful behavior and evil. Um, so that's the big thing. And then how does that play out? Well, things like gender, uh, there, the, uh, there are structures that can encourage uh, at the very best um, disparities in, in gender. Uh, it's, I think one, and this is a little controversial, but I think it's reasonable. You can ask things like, should there be uh, more maternity leave for women? You know, women have the babies. Women are forced to, uh, therefore often forced to take off work, often unpaid, or will have setbacks in their career. Now we can argue over whether it's a government's job to enforce maternity leave or to require it. We can argue about that. It's up for discussion. But we should see that it does contribute to things like women who want to work can't work as well as, as, as like men can because they have to care for their kids. And again, we can argue about whether what we should do, but seeing that as a, as a systemic issue is reasonable. Think about it in, those, in that, that lens. Um, another big issue is uh, something that's been termed the white privilege. And we've got to be very careful to define our terms there. I like uh, sociologist George Yancey. He's a black sociologist. He's a friend of mine. Uh, he defines uh -huh. white privilege as advantages that whites have over persons of color as a group and on average. We're not saying that every white person has all of these privileges all the time. Depends where you, what your context is, depends, what is it, is it frequent, is it infrequent? But there are examples where you can just see that experimentally. A great example is a, a conservative think tank called the NBER, or they wrote a paper um, called Are Emily and Greg More Employable Than Lakeisha and Jamal? They did an experiment where they sent resumes to employers, and they found that if the resumes were identical, they simply changed the name from white names to black names. That was it. That the white resumes were, had better reception from the employers. They got more interviews. So mm -hmm. that, that's an example of white privilege. Now, we're not saying, like George says, think of privilege as in terms of rights. We don't want to take away people's rights so that everyone can have no rights. We want to extend rights and privileges to everybody. We don't want anyone to be discriminated against because of their name, right? So it's, it's a good way of thinking about it. We're not trying to strip people of things, but we're trying to give everyone those privileges. 
So and there are other studies that you can, experimental studies that can show that whites have a systemic advantage. Now, again, what should we do about it? That's a matter of debate. We should talk about it as Christians. But critical theory encourages us to think in these systemic terms, and that's a good thing, uh, to not ignore, and well, it's all about the individual. Well, no, it can also be about our culture, our, our ideas, and how we're shaped by media representations, other things. So those are all positive aspects of critical theory. And I can give some more quick ones, yeah, if you want. Um, yeah, yeah, so culture, basically, we one of the positives is that we don't have to um, turn a blind eye to culture, that we um, that it does encourage us to look at the world around us and, um, uh, and, and take that into account as we do um, interpret some of the individual um, issues in our in our daily lives and that. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, if, there, if there were some more positives that you'd like to share, that would be fine as well. Or Yeah, sure. Uh, I mean, another big one is that the main project of critical theory is to destroy oppression, to liberate people that are vulnerable. Well, that's a very biblical value. The Old Testament is full of condemnation of oppression, commands to care for the vulnerable, widows, orphans, foreigners, so the, you know, the poor... So that and, and the, the paradigmatic example of, of salvation in the Old Testament is um, is Israel's salvation from Egypt. The Egypt, Egyptians were enslaving the Israelites. God liberated them and freed them. They were being oppressed, and God liberated them. So obviously, Christians should work for justice and liberation. Now we got to be careful there again. How do you define oppression? Because critical theorists will define oppression in ways that Christians would not. So, but but at least the idea that. Oppression is a bad thing, and we should oppose it as Christians. That's scriptural completely, as long as we define it carefully. Um, the third one would be that power can blind us. So critical theorists will often talk about how powerful people will, will interpret, uh, will create laws, create systems, interpret scripture even in ways that are self, self, selfish or self-justifying. They will justify their own power through twisting scripture or through creating un, unjust laws. That's biblical. Power corrupts. Uh, look at, look at uh, Jesus. People came to him and said, divide my inheritance with me and my brother. And he said, watch out. Be on your guard right, against all kinds of greed. Greed can blind you. The speck in your eye and the plank in your brother's eye. Right? So, oh, sorry, the, the speck in your brother's eye with the plank in your own eye. Be careful. Your sin can blind you. Your power can blind you to sin. Critical theorists affirm that, but so does the Bible. Uh, look at James. Um, or. Uh, the last one is that critical theory would say, listen to individuals, especially the marginalized, those that society deems worthless and not valuable, that Christians should be the very first to affirm they're God's people, they're creating God's image, uh, they're infinitely valuable. James talks about you know, favoritism. If you say to a poor man, oh, go sit on the floor, but a rich man comes in, oh, come sit next to me. He says, you become a judge with an evil heart. So we should, we should as Christians, lift up people who have been cast aside, marginalized, who aren't valued in the culture, and say, no, you are valuable. So again, critical theory would affirm that too, and we can say, yes, that's right. As Christians, the Bible talks about that. So there are a lot of things that we should see in critical theory that are consistent with the Bible, and we should be reminded, yeah, we, maybe we've fallen short in these areas, and so we should listen to critical theorists who say, hey, are you sure you're listening to the marginalized? Are you sure that power is not twisting your interpretation of Scripture or the way you approach uh, reality, economics, etc. So that that's those are all good things. Mm, yeah. So those desires for, for positive social change um, mm-hmm. is, is something, like you said, that is akin to scripture. Um, but but as as well, you know, as we discuss some of the um, 
some of the opposite attributes. Um, like you said, everything is about interpretation and how we apply those yeah. principles. Um, so, so let's 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 look at that. Um, some of the the negative attributes of critical theory. I think things that you and I have both been alarmed about, and that we see um, in quite a progressing um, rather quickly and swiftly. Um, and I know you'd mentioned earlier about just kind of a, a large part of the basis of this is about the, this the oppressed or oppression oppressed or um, oppressed model um, and kind of these um, these identity groups. And yeah. when we're looking at at the gospel and at the biblical worldview, that obviously can lend itself to um, some some contradictions and some some um, some irreconcilable differences. So let's talk about some of those sure. negative attributes of the theory. Sure. Um, so I think the of all the problems with critical theory, the biggest one is that it's not it's often not being used as a tool. So in other words, we 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 have a biblical worldview that's ultimately about Jesus and Christianity and Scripture. And then we use critical theory as a tool to help us expose certain ideas about power and oppression. And that's, that's probably okay. What's happening, though, is that critical theory is being slowly brought on board as a worldview, as a, as a competing narrative, a meta-narrative about reality. And that's problematic because worldviews – you ever see – you said, you ever watch the show Highlander? You're about my age. Remember Highlander, the movie and the TV show? It was a terrible TV oh, show. Oh, man. Yeah, that was a long time ago, though. So I don't recall. I watch it. When I was sick at home, yeah. I would watch it like during the day, like daytime television. The repeats were on. So, anyway, Highlander was about like these immortal beings who had swords and they'd fight each other. And and but the the tagline was, "In the end, there can be only one." Well, mm. worldviews are like that. Worldviews are like that. Worldviews, there, there can be only one worldview. And if you try to have two worldviews running around in your brain and, and you can't have your foot in both. You can try, but slowly one worldview will gain preeminence. It, it, they will fight mm-hmm. each other if they're intended. And so what I see happening is that people begin by sort of just dipping their toes in the trickle theory and thinking, oh, there's some good ideas here. But it becomes more mm-hmm. and more a part of their basic fundamental thinking about reality. And then it becomes, mm-hmm. it becomes a rival to Christianity. It becomes a rival to their – it becomes a lens through which they see everything. So, that, so that's mm-hmm. what I see happening. And so then the number one issue then, because that's happening, because I see it happening, the number one issue with critical theory is that it's irreformable. Meaning, so that was an idea in the Reformation that the Catholic Church said at the time of the Reformation, we are, we declare that we are irreformable. The, the Protestants said we want to be always reforming, always holding up our beliefs to Scripture and saying, is this compatible with Scripture? Whereas the Catholic mm-hmm. Church says, no, actually, we are irreformable. We are always going to be the same. We're never going to reform ourselves to Scripture because we have the truth. Now, that sort of dynamic is happening with critical theory, and especially critical theory, because of, I'll give you two reasons. So, uh, when, when you, let's say that uh, a person who's just steeped in critical theory makes some claim about anything, any kind of claim about, uh, I, who knows what, sexism, racism, uh, sexual orientation, they make a claim, Okay. And I, who am not, I'm, you know, I come to them and I say, uh, actually, I think that claim you're making is not true. Here's the evidence that your claim is not true. The critical theorist has two things they can do. If I am a member of a privileged group, so if they make a claim, like I don't make any claim, but if they say that, the, if they say, you know, the, the Earth is flat, and I come to them and say, actually, 
That's not true. Here's the evidence the Earth is actually a sphere. If I'm a member of an, a, a privileged group, an oppressor group, they can immediately say to me, uh, yeah, you're, you're only saying that because you're trying to protect your supremacy. You're saying that because it's, it's, it's supporting your power, the power that you have uh, as, yeah, as a scientist, for example. Oh, yeah, of course, you'd say that. You're a scientist. You're, you're defending your uh, hegemonic discourse about science and nature reality. That's why you're saying that. Or, or and if I mm-hmm. start saying, and they say, and I say, hey, that's, you shouldn't call me it. You're kind of hurting my feelings. It's saying I'm a scientist. I'm doing this for power. I'm not doing it for power. Oh, you see, now you're being fragile. You can't take the fact that here I am telling you about the earth being flat. Now you don't want to talk about it. So your fragility. And then, or they'll say, right. you know, you questioning me. You know, I'm an oppressed person. Me believing in the flat earth. I, I believe that with all my heart. I can tell you about my experience with the flat earth. To walk around my neighborhood, it's totally flat. So you questioning my narrative is hurtful. And you're not listening to me. You're supposed, you're a oppressor. I'm an oppressed person. You should listen to me. You shouldn't be talking. Don't try, you know, don't try to drown me out and silence me. So there are all these tools that critical theory gives them because of this dichotomy between oppressor and oppressed. If, if, if they're an oppressed person and I'm an oppressor or part of our groups, then they can tell me mm-hmm. that I'm making these assertions based on supremacy, fragility, I'm being hurtful, I'm not listening. So it's a way to insulate those, any claim they make from any kind of criticism. That includes scriptural criticism. I come to them and say, hey, I, I don't think this claim is compatible with scripture. They can still say, mm-hmm. well, that's because you're, you're immersed in supremacy, you're fragile, you're, you're being hurtful when you're dismissing my experience. So that's if I'm an oppressor. But here's the thing. Mm-hmm. What if I am also a fellow oppressed person? So what if uh, you know, they're an oppressed group, I'm the same group. And I come to them and say, no, really, actually, I agree with Neil. Right? I think he's right. The earth is a sphere. Right? But now they can say, oh, man, you've internalized your oppression. You know, you're, you, you're, you're only saying that because you've internalized this narrative that scientists have imposed on you that Earth is a sphere, and you're falling in line with the scientists. And, and so and I'm, I'm sure you've talked about this, how that's been your experience uh, as a, you know, a black woman, that when you don't affirm what people are saying about race or gender, that you'll often be told, mm-hmm. well, that's just your internalized oppression speaking. Right. Is that, or, is that, you know Absolutely, you know, or it's pointed out, you know, my my family, which is an interracial family, so, um, you know, I'm told that that that, that is um, why I feel the way that I feel, um, that I they're not my genuine um, truths or emotions, um, but that I'm just um, speaking out of of just ignorance, um, even though um, these are these are my genuine experiences, my genuine beliefs, and genuine convictions. Yeah, that I'm, right, yeah. I'm somehow deceived myself in some way. Mm-hmm. And so I think so. But what you've done there, so now the person who the critical theorist or the person who embraces critical theory, if anyone challenges their claim on the basis of evidence, reason, argumentation, or even scripture, they have two tools now. If the person speaking is a member of a privileged group, well, that's their privilege talking. If the member speaking mm-hmm. is a member of an oppressed group. Well, that's internalized oppression. I actually, I was amazed to see it's not a, in these anthologies. I read about a thousand pages of critical theory. It's incredible how often internalized oppression comes up, because that's the mm-hmm. defense mechanism. When anyone questions your narrative, you, when anyone says to you, "I don't think that's true," you can either say, "Well, that's supremacy," or "That's internalized oppression." But you've basically made your claims irreformable. No matter what you right. claim, no matter who's doing the doing the objection, exactly. Even if you're appealing to scripture, you can say. 
or at least think in your heart, yeah, I don't really. That's just that's just their power talking. That's just their their uh, oppression mm-hmm. talking. I can really discount. I don't have to actually sit and listen to say, are they is that true or not? And that that's, right. that's the biggest. It's called yeah. It's called epistemic closure. They have closed themselves off to all uh, you know rebuke, warning, exhortation, discussion because they're so because whoever says that makes a challenge to their beliefs can be dismissed. Mm-hmm. I mean, we see this in the discussion of abortion, right? If a, right. I've seen it personally, I've seen this, I mean, I've seen this personally in many places, but if a man makes a rational argument against abortion, the pro-choice person says, well, that's just because you're a man, right? If a yeah. woman makes exactly the same argument, oh, well, right. you're oppressed. You internalize that narrative, of the, the patriarchy's narrative. And we can see mm-hmm. when it comes to uh, abortion, I mean, every pro-life person has experienced this. And we immediately say, oh, yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. It's so frustrating. But we got to be careful because it's happening in other areas too now. Whereas people are saying, mm-hmm. oh, oh, you say that because you're an ex. You, you say that because you're privileged. So we have to – and here, here's why. And the Bible is so emphatic that we need to be to, – everybody needs to examine the speck, the plank in their own eye needs to examine their own hearts and to be open to correction. Proverbs twelve fifteen: Fools think their own way is right, but the wise listen to others. Proverbs mm-hmm. nineteen twenty: Listen to advice and accept discipline, and at the end you will be counted among the wise. You know, we have, the golden rule. The golden rule says, "Do unto others what you'd have them do to you." If you make a statement about the truth and Scripture, would you want other people to say, "Oh, you're just oppressed. You're just you're just a pa- you're on a power trip"? No, you'd want them to actually mm-hmm. listen to you. And, and take it right. to heart and, and ability to say, I, you know, we need to be open to scripture and to evidence. So we can't, if we have this attitude where we are right, we're not going to listen to anybody else, even, even implicitly, right. that's very dangerous. Very dangerous. Yeah. Yeah. You know, if we're in a position where we can't be questioned and where our views can't be questioned, then you really have to, have to think long and hard if we're, um, if we're affirming, you know, scripture, because scripture encourages us to reason together, and um, and you know, it talks about iron sharpening iron, and um, you know, just right. recently, I think I with you, I was um, a friend had had shared about um, this racial oppression, and um, particularly in my area, in my in my city, and um, some some issues she had had in the Christian community, churches with pastors, and things of that nature, and I, I um, innocently just asked, asked her who, where, just from my own perspective, um, I wanted to know maybe places or churches or individuals that I should avoid or either, um, you know, maybe pray for, you know, and yeah. um, I was I was met with, with antagonism and I was attacked for asking questions about particulars um and it was oh who are you to question me and my experiences and i'm like no i'm, I'm just exactly i right. just want to know i just want to know details i want to know right right and so it was it it becomes this you know this unquestionable uh thing and so um that's a very that's a very scary place to be and i yeah. think that you know gave scriptures where um that's very unwise and so we have to be willing to be questioned and we have to be willing to defend our views and um in that and and um not just be in a place of, of where nothing can touch us and and nothing can be um 
can come at us that that opposes what what we believe um without without becoming angry or defensive or you know that so um and go ahead you were you were sharing some more just some other areas or issues that other things too. I, I want to add just that that and that applies to you and me too this is why I welcome dialogue. People are like, you're mischaracterizing what I believe. I, I will talk to you. I will listen. I will question. So I'm not arguing that this, you know, critical theorists have this terrible view, and, and, but don't, don't ask me to defend that. I'm saying let's all sit down. You, me, critical Absolutely. theorists, we're all going to sit under Scripture and talk as brothers and sisters and say, what is true? What is we are all under the authority of Scripture, and let's interact then, like the Bible tells us to, as people who are who've humbled themselves, that we realize that we're sinners. We all need a scriptural rebuke, correction, exhortation, etc. So that's all I'm asking for is that we we not um, set up categories of people that can't that are are untouchable, or ideas that are untouchable. Only thing that's untouchable is Scripture. That <laughs> that's what's our authority. And that, this actually, so that's the second point I was going to make. So why then? Why is there this asymmetry, and that's because it's built in the critical theory. So the first premise mm-hmm. is that they're groups of oppressors and oppressed, and that's why you have this, uh, this is why you can dismiss certain claims as, oh, that's speaking from privilege, that's speaking from internalized oppression, because it's built into the model. Uh, but also it'll mm-hmm. emerge, and this is often, it's amazing, but it's often explicit, different rules are handed out to different groups. So either implicitly in terms of co- like social interactions, but often explicitly there'll be commands given to the privileged group that are not given or even reversed for the, uh, for the oppressed group. And, and here's mm-hmm. the problem there. So, so I, I'll give examples in a second, but um, the problem with that, biblically speaking, is that God's moral commands are universal. We're you so never right. see in the scripture... Yeah, you, you you never see scripture saying like, well, this group has power, so here are the commands to them. But this group is oppressed, so here are the moral commands to them. Sin is sin. Sin is primarily mm-hmm. against God, not against our you know, other human beings. So your position in society cannot determine whether an action is sin. You know, a sin is a thought, word, or deed that is contrary to God's commands. Well, those mm-hmm. things don't depend on who you are. You know, so we should not be encouraging thoughts, words, or deeds, attitudes that are sinful regardless of where they're happening. Uh, they could be ha- – if, if a person who's deeply oppressed, uh, you know, hates their brother in their heart, they're sinning. A person with lots of power hates their brother in their heart. They're sinning too. Now, their sin might be more hurtful in terms of physical – they have more power that can be more damaging. Sure, to community, to society. Yeah, but we're asking about the spiritual qualitative nature of their sin. It's, it, that's the same. They seem quantitatively, well, but yeah, not, yeah, quality. Yeah. Yeah, I was gonna say, yeah, we can camp out there for just a minute because, I mean, I think that the, the you know, the implication and that we see is, you know, when we're talking about issues of race, for instance, um, is that those who are minorities, um, though they may have stereotypes of um, of white people, um, they technically cannot be racist um, or yeah. or or, or you know, it show ne- racist attitudes because by nature of being a minority and by nature of being of an oppressed class, that that is um, that that they just cannot be racist. That that's something that the majority culture, their oppressed culture, is only capable of doing because of 
these systemic issues um, and power right. issues and and that and and like you said with scripture it's just not that does not hold water whatsoever right so the, what critical theorists will say is they'll say well minorities can be can be prejudiced but they can't be mm-hmm. racist because racism has involves systems and oppression whereas prejudice just involves personal actions but here's the thing. So I can say, okay, they're defining their terms that way. That is a, it's a different definition than the dictionary has, but okay. Um, so they define their terms that way. But here's the question. This is crucial for Christians because they say, well, you're just defining your terms differently. That's fine, right? Well, sort of, but here's the question. Is, is the Bible more concerned with sin or with sin and power? Now, clearly, sin plus power is worse than just sin. If you know, a person sins in their heart rather than you know, acting on it and killing a bunch of people, that's, that's better. You know, so murdering someone in your heart is better than murdering them in, in, in actuality. However, both are sin. So we have to be careful if we're going to say, well, okay, racism is, priv- is, is prejudice plus power. Sure, but prejudice is, and, and racism are both sin. So we can't then move from saying, well, blacks can't be racist because they don't have structural power. Okay, but they can still sin. And if we're going to be faithful to the scriptures, we have to call sin, sin. And make sure that all people are held to God's standard. We can't. So I think mm-hmm. the problem is that there's ambiguity, there's equivocation. On the one hand, they'll say blacks can't be racist because we define racism as systemic. Okay, but then they'll turn around and say, and we're, but we're going to focus on racism as an, as a wicked, evil thing, and not talk about prejudice as a wicked, evil, or, or at least not focus on that. But wait a minute. Mm-hmm. About wait, God views it. God views sin as sin. Again, God recognizes that a person who murders in their heart versus the person who murders with their hand or with an axe, because they're different. But we have mm-hmm. to call all people to God's standard. And so if there is prejudice harbored in people's hearts, regardless of whether they have the power to act on it, that is sinful and needs to be exposed to the gospel. So that's where I worry. Mm-hmm. Let me give an example. I think a big issue is that people rightly recognize that, that prejudice plus power is much more socially harmful. I agree. If a person with uh, a person has murder in their heart, but has no ability to do anything about it, that's a sin, but it's not going to really harm society very much. Whereas a person with murder in their heart who has access to a Gatling gun will do a lot more harm. We should be more concerned as a society about people with murder in their hearts with access to weapons. I agree. But when it comes to the gospel, mm-hmm. we have to treat people as equally morally accountable. So let me give you an example. Mm-hmm. Of, uh, so I think people tend to say, well, it's so bad when racism is, is, is institutionalized. I say, I, I agree. But here's what happens when you don't emphasize the personal prejudice that's, that's, that's a root of, of sin. Um, I, I'm going to give you some, here are some rules from an actual Christian group. Now, I'm going to change the groups involved. I'm not going to mention the group. I'm going to change the labels involved. I'm not going to talk about what they were talking about. I'll just change the, so I'm going to change the, it's not going to talk about what we're talking about. Let's listen to the rules. These are rules that are. And I don't out. mind. Just so you, know, you don't mind mentioning names or um, or groups, but but you feel do whatever you feel comfortable. So. Yeah. No. I, I understand. But I just want to make it. I'm, I want to be clear that I'm not about the people. I'm not trying to say, oh, this person's bad. Listen to them. I'm just trying to show the ideology. Okay. So listen to these statements and tell me how they sound to you. Okay. Imagine this. This. These rules now. Imagine they were given directly and only to women. So here are my rules for women in this discussion. Here's how women are, here are the rules for women in our discussion. Number one, don't make the conversation about you. 
If you feel silenced or undervalued, use that experience to inform how you treat men in other spaces. Instead of developing a victim complex, the falling of female tears does not build bridges. Okay, number two, don't demand proof of a man's lived experience or try to counter their narrative with the experience of another man. Right? Believe their mm. stories. Uh, mm. Do not chastise men or dismiss their message because they express grief, fear, or anger in ways you deem inappropriate. Provide space for men to wail, cuss, or even yell at you. Uh, don't get defensive when you are called out for any of the above, meaning, meaning being, being a sexist, being, being hurtful. So when you're called out by a man that you're being sexist, here's what you should do. When a man tells you that your words, tone, or behavior are, ra- are, are sexist, oppressive, triggering, you stop. Don't try to explain yourself. Don't become passive-aggressive or sarcastic. Don't leave in a huff. Uh, remain cognizant of the dynamics of female fragility and take note of how it shows up in you. Okay, so these mm-hmm. are rules that were given in different contexts. But if we heard those, right. words, like, my goodness, who was saying this? Mm-hmm. This is so full of just it's unfair. Yeah. Is, this how, is this a Christian group? Is this how Christians wow. treat other Christians of different genders? No, you'd never. And yet this is completely acceptable. And the justification explicitly is, well, one group is oppressed. And the oppressed mm-hmm. group act this way for their oppressors. And, and But I'm thinking, man. How many scriptural commands did I just violate in those rules? Letting them right. cuss at me, you know, uh, not questioning anything they say, just apologizing if they tell me that. I mean, I'm engendering a huge amount of bitterness, unfairness, injustice. There are explicit commands. I can say scripture says all of us should be slow to speak, slow to become angry, mm-hmm. quick to listen. Right? So, but we're restricting that only to one subset because of the power dynamics in the culture. And I'm just saying that that's, when you hear it with a different group involved and outside of this dynamic of a pressure oppressor oppressed 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 group, it sounds extremely different, doesn't it? Um, so that's why I'm showing it does, it's showing up all over the place, uh, and that's why I think it's so dangerous. Yeah, that's what I was. Thinking. What what you're reading there? This, these aren't isolated um, instances. This is very widespread um, in my interactions, um, in what I've read and. As I know, as you're reading more and more, it's it's it is becoming widespread, um, where right. conversation is gen- genuine conversation is shut down. Which is why we're doing this show is because um, it, it is very hard to have these discussions um, because right. of the the concept of there is a a, a, a lot of us are silenced before we even speak, <laughs> um, and so it's important for us to at least have these have to, to to share our voices in this discussion um, as well. So, I mean, just I think we, we we specifically look at, you know, critical theory and Christianity and, and kind of these um, obstacles and these discrepancies. Was, was there anything else that you would like to add about just the, the conflict with um, the critical theory and, and Christianity in general? Yeah, or I mean, specifically? I think, I think more examples. I think the main thing is this, so that people – in this group or in this mindset would say, well, yeah, okay, it's true that we're silencing the oppressors, but it, that's, that's fair because they've spent years and decades uh, silencing the oppressed people. But here's the question. Is that the way Christians can, can interact? If, if, if Christians get together and they say, okay, your group, not you personally, but your group has, has silenced my group for years, now it's my turn? Mm-hmm. It, it, it silences mm-hmm. someone a sin or not. 
if it's a sin, yeah. you don't get to, like, pay back this. Well, you sinned first, so it's my turn to sin. I mean, think about how that with the children. With, well, he sinned first. It's my turn to sin now. Now it's fair. We, this, we don't think that way. I mean, Jesus explicitly repudiated that idea. So all I'm well, asking is that we, we come to the table, we come in equal footing. I understand in culture. In culture, yes, one group is, is, is suffering more. One, but I'm saying under Scripture and as Christians, we cannot allow – Sin that just go unchecked and unchallenged. We have to say scripture. Mm-hmm. So you got to show me in scripture. And I'm open to it. Someone wants to show me in scripture where one group has no power and therefore they're allowed to sort of cuss and yell at the other group. I'm talking about individuals even. I'm talking about just because of my gender, just because of the color of my skin, just because of my ethnicity, I'm allowed to have a different standard of morality that would be completely unacceptable in other people with different colored skin, different gender. Show me in scripture where that's a category. It's not. And we have to begin to say, where am I getting this idea? It's not coming from the Bible. Go ahead. Um, I was going to say, yeah, as Christians, I mean, we need to have, when we look at the world around us and we look at the, the social ills and the the unrest um, and the division, I mean, we need to have a uniquely Christian response. And um, one that takes into different factors, obviously, um, but but it's still a uniquely Christian response, and so I th- it sounds like that's what you're saying is that um, when we compromise on just core um, Christian, just just plain Christian teachings that Jesus laid out specifically and clearly, not ambiguous or anything, but when we just lay out or when we disregard those things, then it shows that we are being influenced more so by. Um, other worldviews rather than our Christian worldview. Um, let's talk about, um, take a minute to talk about um, social justice because that kind of is where I'll have sort of lead in terms of how um, Christians are to respond around, um, regarding social injustices around them and the social justice movement. And um, we see that um, it's growing, the, the social justice movement and um, so and a lot of Christians are confused about where, you know, where, how they should feel or where they should, where they fit in in the social justice movement, or should they fit into the social justice movement? Um, so, what are as we talk about critical theory, what are some of the connections that we see between critical theory and social justice? Right. So the second book that I read uh, of these anthologies was um, Marianne Adams' Div- Readings for Diversity and Social Justice. That was the name of the book. It's all about social justice. But it was just critical theory. I mean, you read the book, you're like, this is pure, unadulterated critical theory, oppressed groups, oppression, uh, liberation. And so what I would say is this. Should Christians support social justice? Uh, just, yeah, just define your term. What do you mean by social justice? So, so let me ask you a question. Should Christians uh, support reproductive justice? You say, well, what do you mean by reproductive justice? I mean, that means things very specific in certain cult circles. So what do you mean when you say, oh, absolutely, they should support reproductive justice? I say, well, I define mm-hmm. reproductive justice to mean the right of women to have a child if they want to. That, that to me, is what reproductive justice means. I would say, mm-hmm. well, okay, but listen here. That term, reproductive justice, being used, to dis- it's equated with support for abortion. That's what it means. <laughs> So you might, you might redefine that term to mean something else. That's fine. Yeah, of course Christians should support the right of a woman to have a child if she wants to have a child. That's fine. Of course that's biblical. But you're using a term that's been so associated with 
very wrong unbiblical ideas that we should either mm-hmm. at the very least be extremely hesitant to use that term. Mm-hmm. What I'm saying is this, the term social justice is either a ambiguous. I mean, look it up, try to define it. It's, it's incredibly ambiguous or yeah. it's not ambiguous at all. It's very specific. It means liberation from oppression, according to critical theory. So, I don't see why you'd want to use that term if it's either A, ambiguous, or B, has a meaning that's associated with critical theory, which I think we shouldn't be supporting. So I would, I'm not going to say you should never talk about social justice. Maybe if you have the time to define your term very clearly and say, well, here's what I mean. I mean Christians should, should try to should love the poor, care for the widows and orphans that are distressed. They should free the people who are actually oppressed. Uh, we should work for systems that are just and fair and equitable. You see all of that, and, we're, and I'm grounding all of this in the Bible's concern for the vulnerable. That's fine, mm-hmm. but I'm not sure why you would use that term that way. Why not just say I, I'm for biblical justice? I, I support a biblical model for a just society. Say that. That's what you mean. Why use an ambiguous term that can people will be confused? They'll say, oh, so because here's a, a, a test. Google, just Google, Google top social justice organizations. Just Google that mm-hmm. phrase, and you will find lists of like Planned Parenthood, you know, all of these organizations that are all claiming the mantle of social justice. And the question is, if that's what people mean by social justice, do you are, do you want to use that phrase? Just use, just use a different phrase. Use I suggested use societal justice. It's just, it's just different mm-hmm. enough that you're like, oh, hmm, what do you mean by that? Good question. Let me explain to you what the Bible says. Rather than using a term that's so, and just Google it. Just Google it to see how people are using this term in practice. And I think you'll see, hey, I don't really want to mislead either non-Christians about what I believe, or even maybe uh, immature Christians. I mean, do you really want to go to like a 12-year-old or a 14-year-old, you know, little high school radical and say, hey, Christians are for social justice. They're like, yeah, yeah. What do they Mm -hmm. understand at that point? Just be careful. Just choose your words carefully. Um, And here's why. Most I want to just mention this. Um, I think what I see, I mentioned public figures earlier, how I see uh-huh. public figures who are embracing, they start embracing social justice at the beginning. And they're, they're conservative, theologically conservative evangelical Christians, and they begin this sort of journey embracing social justice causes, right? And I think in defined carefully, that's fine, right? They're caring about the poor. They care about racism. Good. I, I do too. I, n- I never want this to be used as an excuse to not deal with poverty, racism, et cetera. And that's not what I'm intending here. But they begin there. Mm-hmm. And then, but they, they, they buy into this critical think theory worldview, right, which says things like, well, there are oppressed groups and oppressor groups. You can't trust people with power because they abuse it. They twist scripture. You can't, uh, don't mm-hmm. subscribe to the theology of oppressor groups because they've got to decolonize your theology, divorce it from power, go back to the people without power, we were saying. And they embrace that idea, right? Here's the problem. They, right. they embrace all of that thinking. What do you do then? You're a conservative evangelical, and you're, you're, you're embracing this in terms of, say, race. You're like, yeah, you know, people, whites oppressed blacks for, for, for centuries. Historically, it's horrifying. You read the stories of lynchings and slavery and Jim Crow. It's awful. It's stomach-turning. So they embrace the idea mm-hmm. of these people were oppressed and the whites were, were largely the oppressors. I agree with historically that's all been true. But you embrace that, that mm-hmm. ideology, now, here's the question. What do you do when you realize that your church teaches that males should be elders, that, that mm. the Bible teaches that males only should be elders? 
and you have people mm. in your on your team, on your team, other social justice people that care that they say, hey, that's systemic sexism. You got the church mm-hmm. franchising an entire gender on the basis of their uh, nothing else. That is systemic sexism. You cannot embrace social justice and be for the, the oppression of women. So you say, oh, mm-hmm. well, I guess that's true. Maybe I should go to a different church. Then you say, wait a minute. The Bible also teaches that the men are the spiritual leaders of the family. That's sexist too. Mm-hmm. That's appalling. That's, that's cultural. That's embedded in the teaching. We got to embrace egalitarianism. Say, oh, that's a good point too. And so that's, that's true. Now, wait a minute. What about male theology? Who are the people that wrote things like, who, who from the Reformation? Who, Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, yeah. Augustine. These are all men. You can't, you yeah. know, you got to de-genderfy your theology. Start reading female theologians. I have a good list for you. Here's a list of, read nothing but female theologians for three or four years, right? Because you have to compensate for this male-dominated theology. Oh, that's a good point. Now, wait a minute here. Who wrote the Bible? It's all men. There, where are the female authors here? I, I can't just I embrace this, this sexualized, gender, you know, one-sided the, uh, scripture. I have to find other sources for spiritual. At what point do you draw the line and say, no, that's not right? Once you've bought into this way of thinking, how are those arguments not relevant? Another example that, I, that I've seen, and I've seen this, and I can name people, I'm not going to. The, the, the people I'm the authors I'm reading, the people writing in Adam's anthology, when they talk about oppression, they are universally naming several things. They're like, oppression, what does that mean? Racism, mm-hmm. sexism, classism, homophobia, uh, uh, cisgenderism, right? ableism. Those are mm-hmm. all univocally affirmed as oppression. Mm-hmm. So if you embrace the idea that we should liberate people from oppression – what do you do when people turn to you and say, wait a minute, you call yourself a social justice advocate, and yet you embrace, you embrace male hedgehogs, you embrace male you embrace heterosexism, you embrace quote-unquote quote, traditional marriage. So I'm, mm. I, 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 I'm not just thinking, this is not scare-mongering, I'm talking about actual people with huge audiences who have taken this route, and it's not a slippery slope. It's a logical implication. They're simply thinking consistently about their worldview. They're not just really right. getting sucked in. They're saying, hey, that's a good point. I apply the same reasoning to race, to class. Why am I not applying it to gender or sexuality? They're being consistent. And it, but the problem is that consistency is eating away at obviously biblical positions. So that's a real danger. Yeah, and we, we we look at these figures that become um, more and more progressive and then eventually begin to deny um, just core Christian orthodoxy um, who have started out in, in the social justice warrior kind of mentality. And we see them where they end up, and then we wonder how or why. And what you're, what you're explaining is it, it makes perfect sense that there's this consistency that they're applying to their worldview um, and that – um, in a sense, it will rule out um, and, and cause them to question just the basic framework of, of the Christian worldview. And I think, you know, the, the term biblical justice is such a more um, accurate term for what right. we're called to do. Um, we, yes, justice is, is should be on our hearts. Um, but that, that, that quest and that that zeal for justice 
uh, in that process if we're undertaking that task with a, a model that is not compatible with scripture, then what we can be in the process, we are um, not only um, uh, causing ourselves to become further and further um, from the Lord and from the, the truths of the gospel, but also others who are watching us, others who are involved in our movements. We're, we're not bringing them closer to Jesus in the process, which is what which is what our lives are to do, is to glorify God, right? To bring people to the knowledge of Christ, um, even in our um, even in our efforts to um, to better the world around us. It's still ultimately to bring them to Jesus, and not um, you know, not just to to a movement itself and to a fight itself. Right. Yeah, I think when people when people hear what we're talking about today, and they hear this podcast, I think a lot of times people say, you know. Oh, but you know, you, you're you, either you're trying to just minimize racism or minimize sexism or minimize injustice. You're trying to minimize it, or you're giving ammunition to people who are minimizing these things. Now, well, all I can say is I really, genuinely um, do not want to minimize injustice, uh, racism, sexism. I don't want to minimize any of those things. I want us to be active about that. But I am just trying to ask that while we are zealous for justice and and, and ending racism, sexism, oppression, that we are still not letting go of our Christian foundations. And number two, that we have to be cognizant that this is not a right-wing conservative scaremongering tactic to distract you from justice. This is a really right. serious danger. I, I, you know, I, 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 I know you and I have talked personally about, we've named names personally, but we've seen this happen. So we will, I just want to encourage people and urge them, please, Take this seriously. I, I understand if you want to spend 90% of your time talking about oppression, which is wrong, I agree, and only 10% warning people about the dangers of, you know, of, of what we're talking about, of, of adopting a critical theoretical standpoint or framework, that's fine. I don't, I'm asking for 50-50. I'm just, please be aware. This is really serious. Be open to dialogue. If someone comes to you and says, hey, right. I'm worried about what we're being taught here. Can, don't just write them off and say, oh, you just want to ignore racism. No, no, or sexism, or you're, you're, you're a male pig. Be, be, mm-hmm. be humble and say, yeah, maybe, maybe the right. You know, I, I have friends I've reached out to, numerous people, even people that you, you recommended to me, and <laughs> said, I really yeah. genuinely, am I crazy here? Because maybe I'm overreacting. Maybe, maybe I'm being, maybe I am, have, I have a secret, you know, implicit bias in my heart that's making me want to ignore justice. So I want dialogue between brothers and sisters in Christ to really hammer out what the Bible teaches, and, but not to be, become polarized like our society. We don't want to have right. – talks about uh, – there's, there's emerging like red Christianity and blue Christianity. So that's deadly. Right. There's Christianity. There's just one Christianity, and, and we cannot mm-hmm. fall into the trap the culture is falling into of, of demonizing people that don't, that don't agree with us. We have to be opening the channels of dialogue – and, so, and listening, ultimately, we're both underneath the authority of Scripture. That's our foundation. Um, and always right. doing that and saying, am I, am I listening properly? Well, I, and I hope that that's what people gather from this discussion is that this is not an attack. But this is, um, we, we, we um, genuinely care about, about other souls and our own souls. And so we, uh, we want people to... Um, have intimacy with Christ in the greatest way and things that may hinder that. Um, we don't want that to come between them and a general relationship with Christ and with their brothers and sisters in Christ. 
And so right. that, that's what this is about, and it's about honoring him. And so I hope that those who listen, who are listening, can um, hear, hear that in our hearts and in our tones and in our our, um, our attitudes here. It's not anything, to, we're not being div- divisive, or um, but we are questioning um, these uh, these practices and theories in light of what what scripture says. And so, um, mm. you know, dialogue is always good. Anything that promotes dialogue, right. I, in my opinion, um, healthy dialogue is great for us as Christians because, again, iron sharpens iron. And, and it's like, you you know, we, you and I have said, are we wrong here? There's, are we missing something, you know? Right. And yeah, um, we are, I want to know. <laughs> yeah. That's, uh, yeah, that's yeah, Jim, I want to know. Yeah, that's the big thing is that I think when George Yancey came and spoke at our church, he, he's a black sociologist. I, I just love his writing. And that's his big mm-hmm. He just he doesn't have an answer, but he wants to foster genuine, healthy, honest dialogue. So we keep talking mm-hmm. to each other. We don't just form into these camps that, and, and, that, that do become like a church within a church, if even church lasts. Like we, that's not how we can interact. We cannot relate to each other on basis of Again, critical theory. The idea that half the church is an oppressor and half the church is an oppressed group, well, that's not, I mean, Galatians 3, that, it flies in the face. Ephesians 2, you cannot think mm-hmm. of your brothers and sisters of Christ as oppressors. And, and the, that is not a healthy way to think about your siblings. Right? And, and, and I think that, for me, is the big issue here is that if we start chopping up the church in terms of like who we are, if our identity in Christ is not greater, and more fundamental than our other identities. They exist still, mm-hmm. still men and women, but but if that's not fundamental, if we don't stand if we're standing in solidarity with our group more than we are with the church, mm-hmm. that's an issue. Right? We stand in solidarity with our brothers and sisters, right, who've been redeemed and mm-hmm. who Jesus loves and who love Jesus. And then any other solidarity beyond that has got to be demoted in importance. So again, yeah, so that, that's I think that's another the issue with, with critical theory is that it would, again, by definition, by its nature, divides groups into a power by power. And mm-hmm. whether that's philosophically reasonable, but, but more than that, theologically, that's deadly. Just think about, the, think about, think about this. In Galatians, who, did you, who, who were being, in Ephesians, who were being reconciled? Jews and Greeks. The Jews right. had suffered for 100 years under brutal Roman occupation. They were literally being crucified by the thousands. They're, they're being taxed. They're the butt of they're being mocked racially. And yet here's Paul mm-hmm. saying Jew and Gentile are one in Christ. You need to the, the barriers and broken down the dividing wall hostility. So if, mm-hmm. if you can see that in that context where literally you have people being tortured to death by Roman soldiers, mm-hmm. but you're one in Christ, that we ought to be able to really that ought to be our model for man. These people are my brothers and sisters. I start there. Mm-hmm. Just going back to the basics, going back to the basics of what Scripture really says um, and examining our own heart as we label and as we identify um, our, as we identify ourselves um, in these groups or as we identify others in, in, in certain groups, um, examining our hearts and seeing where our hearts are um, as we, yeah. as we um, tackle these issues. And like this is the basics of what Scripture says um, and being faithful to that. Um, so now, as we um, kind of wrap up some, um, this has been such a good discussion, and I hope that it helps so many people. Um, in practice, you know, as, 
as critical theory is in practice around us, um, it may be in subtle ways or more overt ways, um, how can we recognize that? And, and, you know, we've talked about what it is and um, some of the problems with it and some of the um, some of the positive attributes of it even, but how can we uh, see, um, how do we recognize it around us in culture and in the church even? Right. I mean, the, 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 I think practically the best way to recognize when it's being assumed, because it's often not people, I mean, even the people in these, these essays I was reading, they don't come out there and say, I'm a critical theorist. Here are my three basic worldview tenets. I mean, Christians don't do that either. Christians, when they write a, like a devotional, a Christian and devotional isn't going to say, okay, I'm a Christian. Here's the Nicene Creed. Here's, the, here's my statement of faith. They just start writing. So it's hard sometimes to recognize when critical theory is, is, is being assumed in a conversation or in a dialogue. And so what I would say is the most useful tool is um, because in the Bible there is one universal moral law, right, with a few exceptions. So there are real you know, roles, like, you know, husbands and wives and children and parents. There are roles. And ironically, when those roles are mentioned, the person with a real authority is, is given deference. They're not suspected not of being of imposing power on it. They're actually said, okay, children, obey your parents. They have authority over you. Of course, I use that authority for for the children's good, but it's the opposite of critical theory. Anyway, the bottom line is there's one moral law that we all have to obey. Because of mm-hmm. that, I should be able to swap the labels and reverse the roles in any statement about you know morality, attitude, thoughts, actions. I should be able to reverse the roles, and it should sound basically still moral, right? If something is acceptable and morally for one group, that's the same rules apply to the other group. Um, mm-hmm. what, I, what I see, though, is that you, if you just take, take a given article, reverse the roles, put, put, put in men for women or women for men, uh, put, put in uh, homosexuals for heterosexuals or vice versa, whites for blacks, blacks for whites, Asians, Hispanics, just swap the roles right, or, or change a, a dialogue a, a, about race to one about gender. Just, so just change the groups involved and read mm-hmm. the story, read the article, read the, listen to the talk again, read it again with those new labels, if it sounds mm. to you really bad, like, oh, my gosh, that, well, think about that. That's probably because the oppressed and the oppressed groups are being treated with different standards of morality. We're not asking about, you know, like, we're not, we're not asking for total mm-hmm. colorblindness here. I think that's a bad approach to race, another topic, okay? We should be able to say, mm-hmm. talk about race, gender, obviously. You can talk about those things. They're real. They, 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 are, they affect our society, how it functions. I'm asking though, when it comes to moral issues, if I, if, I, mm-hmm. if I make a statement, it would sound incredibly hateful, bitter, angry in the mouth of one person with a certain gender or a certain race or a certain ethnicity. If it sounds, it, why does it not raise any alarm bells when there's a different gender, different race, different ethnicity, et cetera? So that's the tool I would use. So go many read some articles and, and swap the roles. And, and if they sound, and there's a huge difference there, Ask yourself, am I applying a double standard? And if I am, what would the Bible say about that? What does the Bible say about equal weights and measures, about, not, about judging impartially, not show favoritism to the poor or to the rich? You know, treat everyone as under God's authority, under the same authority. So that's what I would say is the best tool to identify when you're seeing critical theory or the assumption of critical theory in, in practical dialogue. Wow, that's a very good test. Um, you know, you know, as I'm, as we close out, um, you know, I was just thinking we should um, probably why don't we why don't we close out with prayer because um, 
as we're talking about this issue, and I know we both have been very burdened, um, and I think that just praying for um, our nation, praying for our leaders, praying for our churches, praying for our church leaders, praying for the body of Christ, I think that that is so appropriate right now um, in light of all the division, all of the confusion um, that that is going on around us right now, and um, just praying for God's wisdom and and uh, peace and for His and the true biblical justice. I think that that's that's a, an appropriate way to to end out the show. Um, I'll I'll start. I'll, I'll pray first, and then I'll I'll let you close us out, Neil. If that's okay. Sure. Yep. Dear Lord Jesus, our Master, our Savior, our Redeemer our King, um, Lord, we come to you, Lord. Um, we come to you, Lord, first with open hearts, Lord, and of worship, Lord, open hearts of confession, Lord, where we have um, fallen short of your glory, Lord, where we have not loved you um, with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and where we have not loved our brothers ourselves, Lord. Lord, we pray that as we um, approach these issues, Lord, of injustice and these issues of uh, moral wrongs around us, Lord, um, whether on an individual or a societal scale, Lord, that we remember your word first, that we remember your sacrifice first, Lord, as we engage our brothers and sisters, Lord. Help us, Lord, to see the cross in these discussions above everything else, Lord. Or challenge us, Lord, when we uh, when we desire to self-define terms and people and and when we d- desire uh, to label others, Lord, help us to um, think first in terms of you and look at others as, as, as fellow man created in your image and in your likeness, Lord, fellow sinners, Lord. Um, give us your eyes. Um, teach us, Lord to look at the world as you have made it, Lord, defined by you, our creator, Lord. Um, Help us to see the sin in our own hearts, Lord, instead of um, being so so quick to point fingers, Lord. Let us look inside within our hearts, Lord. But, Lord, let us seek out um, opportunities to, um, to be a voice for those who need a voice, Lord. But, Lord, in a way that glorifies you, in a way that points others to you, Lord, Let us not turn a blind eye, Lord. Let us be aware. Let us be people of truth, Lord. Let us be people who stand um, upon your word. Um, And let us be a people of love, Lord, even in our disagreements. Lord, let us not tear each other down. Let us not um, question um, motives automatically, Lord. But let us be people who are made in your image and your likeness, who have differences of opinions and have arrived at different places in, in their journey, um, you know, based on their circumstances. Um, but let us, let us always be open to, to dialogue and to foster dialogue um, that is glorifying to you, Lord, and how we interact. Lord, I pray that um, you use this, this discussion to help our brothers and sisters, Lord. Help, help us, Lord, if, if we've spoken incorrectly of you, Lord, show us that as well, Lord. Um, we pray for unity, unity in, in your body, Lord. Unity as we, as our goal is to spread your, your gospel, Lord. 
Help us to to see each other not as enemies, Lord, but as co-laborers, as ones who have been bought with your blood, with your precious, precious blood. Lord, your blood that is, is, is worth more than rubies or silver or gold, Lord. And so we um we commit this this time to you that we have shared it and and um again Lord we ask that you use this this podcast um for your glory and to accomplish um great things Lord and to open eyes Lord and open hearts Lord and to draw people to yourself. Father, thank you just for uh, giving me a time to talk to my friend Melissa and to talk about each other and to encourage each other. Uh, like Melissa, I pray that we, uh, you know, when we have blind spots, when we are, we are wrong. If we're wrong about this stuff, Lord, show us. Show us from Scripture. We want our brothers and sisters to point out our blind spots. To We want to love wisdom and love correction. And your word says that faithful are the wounds of a friend. We want to be wounded by Scripture and by our friends when we stray from the truth. Uh, and I pray that we would all want that. We would all be open to, to correction and to, to, to your admonition in, in Scripture I pray that we would see each other uh, as brothers and sisters in Christ, that we'd see ourselves as uh, as sinners in need of a Savior. That would make us humble, and that we would be able to truly embrace one another, uh, regardless of uh, of our race or class or gender or anything else about us, because you have broken down the dividing wall of hostility. I also pray that we would have more of a passion for the, the poor and the vulnerable, or that it says that you're a Father to the fatherless, defender of widows and orphans. So you care about those who are vulnerable, who are oppressed, who are suffering injustice. You desire justice. And I pray that, we, that your church will be known for working for justice. Um, but I also pray that we'd always be grounded, though, in your word, because the same Bible that tells us to love justice tells us about our sin and our need for a Savior and the need for us to listen to uh, correction and rebuke. And I just pray that we'd always be open for brothers to listening to each other. Um, I just pray that in our culture, which is so divided along racial and uh, educational and, and political lines, that the church would be um, a place where people look in on us and see our love for each other. They would see people who don't get along in the culture getting along in church, in fact, us getting along but loving and sacrificing for each other. I pray that we would be a city on the hill that people would see and, and know that, that we're your disciples. So thank you again Excellent. for this time. I pray that you would just smite your smite our hearts, break our hard hearts open with your grace uh, and our need for it, that we would uh, glorify you and honor you in everything that we do. Amen. Amen. Well, now it's always a pleasure to speak with you, and um, I look forward to having future dialogues. Um, maybe this will foster more discussion. Um, and um, listeners, thank you so much for your um your willingness to hear us out and to interact with us. Um, you can uh, interact with us more um, on the comments um, on the Theology Matters with the Blues um, Facebook page. And um, we are, again, we're thankful for this opportunity. And we pray that you are blessed in the Lord and that you go about your day in unity and love and spreading um, the Lord's um, truth and hope to others around you. Uh, we will be uh, sharing more and more um, uh, episodes um, this summer, so definitely stay tuned um, to Theology Matters with the Blues to our Facebook page for notifications, and uh, do share this uh, episode with others who you think that it may help, um, and we thank you for all your support. 
Uh, God bless you, and have a wonderful, wonderful, blessed day in the Lord. God bless.